There, actually, St. Louis was another fake place that I invented. It's just an urban legend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, my I mom used to say if I didn't eat all my vegetables, she'd send me to St. Louis, you know, but I think she just said that to scare me. Mostly. Yeah, I would have nightmares where I would wake up in St. Louis and, I don't know, <laughs> terrifying. Uh. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Unbelievable, the podcast where I tell my good friend two unbelievable stories from the past. But here's the catch. One of them is real. One of them is fake. And I have to guess which one's which. I am true believer of the upcoming fourth wave of ska, a seventh-day Scotventist, if you will, Ooh. Luis Mejia, joined here by... All right, everyone, open up your skybles and let's read from the Holy Streetlight Manifesto. And so, since the Lord laid down his gold finger on this earth to do such wondrous deeds as multiplying bread and real big fish for the hungry masses, this way we can be sure, we can be certain with absolutely no doubt in our hearts that the Lord's work is mighty, mighty Boston's Ska Men, Kurt Danner. And we are back here today to bring you some of the most incredible stories that I've been able to find so that I can fool Kurt into believing me, into trusting me, that I can lie to him. <laughs> wow, that was an amazing intro, Luis. I feel like I just got hit by a ska train. I, I didn't understand very much of it, but I'm so excited to. Well, see, Kurt, I think we've revealed a lot of my personality through this podcast and the likes and dislikes that I hold mm. throughout my life. For example, we know I love the Roman Empire. True. We know I love the Second Mexican Empire. True. But we haven't really revealed to our audience that I love ska. And mm. I am always always waiting and always advocating for the best genre of music and what better way to open up this episode than with a nice introduction for you our sweet sweet birthday boy who turns uh one more year in this never-ending <laughs> clock of life <laughs> kurt happy birthday this is once for you Ooh, thank you Luis. and i was going to say so we are once again recording on my birthday if you've been a long-time listener, you might remember that we actually recorded two episodes on my last birthday. That was mm -hmm. Luis's episode, The Japanese Love Farm, and Court Case Affair Assassination, which I correctly guessed. And then The Sadie, Home of Assassins and Flat Earthers, and An Easily Distracted Picture, which was my episode in which I failed to fool Luis. So I'm one and mm -hmm. one on my birthday so far. We'll see if today maybe I can tip the tide. As always, of course, what, all I want for my birthday is for Luis to let me win. So once again, if he does not, please attack him as maliciously as possible. No holds bars. Yeah. No, please, please do not. Uh, take advantage of the anonymity that the mm. internet gives you and uh, mm. go after me. Really silence me on the webs. Mm. With that said, Kurt, since today I will be telling you the two stories for our episode, back to our regular two-story format, why not you go ahead and start us off with a little fun fact to kick off this fact-finding, truth-discovering endeavor that we set out to do every episode. Kurt, hand over the mic to you. Yes, let's do it. Luis, tell me, true or false? In 18th century England, pineapples were seen as a symbol of wealth. Wealthy pineapple owners would often carry their pineapples around with them as a way to show their high-class status, and it was common to decorate clothing or houseware with pineapple patterns. So if you were a rich person in England in the 18th century, you'd just be like, pineapple this, pineapple that. I got my pineapple in the passenger seat with me. 
Can't leave without it. I keep this pineapple on me. Got that thing, got that thing on me. Mm. And it's just pineapples. Mm. I'm going to say that it's true, Kurt. I've heard that before, that pineapples were all the rage. Because frankly, imagine you're in a place, a sad, sad place like England, and you've <laughs> never seen a pineapple in your life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine even the slight, the slight horror that a pineapple <laughs> could incur in the English people of the mid-1800s? Yeah, that's true, Kurt, isn't it? The awe-inspiring awe of what other wonders might exist now that your mind has been opened up to the possibility of pineapple. Yes, that's true, Luis. Mm -hmm. All power to the almighty pineapple. Uh, yeah. I don't have any more to say on that. So with that being said, let's get this scardy scarded. <laughs> All right, Kurt, let's do this. And you know what, Kurt? Uh, on this podcast, I've been known before to center my stories around certain themes, and you have done so as well, and I feel like I've moved away from that. So we're going to have the themes. The theme that I prepared for today is lookalikes and doppelgangers. We're going to be looking into the history of uh, people that resemble other people, Ooh. and I think that's going to be very special for us today. So without further ado, here goes the stories. Our first story begins in the early, actually the mid-1800s. Nice. Around 1830s, a man in Austria is born. His name is Franz Donitz. Okay. Franz Donitz grows up as Wait, a young businessman. Is this going to be our protagonist? Can we nickname him? I, I think we can get to a better nickname. He, he does get a nickname later on the story, oh, Kurt. On, so I got Franny Donnie ready to go on deck. All right. Well, just call him Franny Donnie, okay? Franny, we'll keep Franny going. Donnie pending we'll see we'll see pending. What <laughs> well we've got franny donnie austrian born man uh he grows up as a bit of an entrepreneur a bit of a hopeful businessman if okay. you will and he decides to quickly move out of austria and start getting involved with trading and getting involved with commerce he decides to tap into the emerging market of the silk trade of now the international silk trade Ooh. with china and southeastern asia mm -hmm. been known for their silk trades throughout medieval europe and medieval history yeah. at this stage in the mid 1800s they're starting to send out shipments down to the americas and the other side of the coast so franny donnie decides to get in on this action and travels to china to become a silk trader uh he there's really not a lot more information but he fails spectacularly oh <laughs> he really oh, no. does not do very well however he chose a very good time to fail fail in in such such a bad way because he did fail in 1849 in china mm -hmm. meaning that around this time was also the beginning of the 1849 california gold rush so he hears of the 1849 California gold rush being in China, where a lot of Chinese citizens or Chinese people decided to travel into California right. to seek for gold. He hops on a boat along with other people in China and travels to California, to Northern California, around the Bay Area to go search wow. for gold he in the mountains. Down. Yeah. He said double or nothing. <laughs> he did. He really did. And he goes into California. He says, I've already lost it all. What do I have to lose? There's no rock bottom if you can't keep digging, baby, is what he says. Yeah. I've hit rock bottom and it could have gold in it. Exactly. So he gets <laughs> to California and changes his name to Frank. So Frank Donitz. Uh, so, nice. I mean, I guess that's where I meant to say he changes his name because he went now by, we can call him Frankie Donitz. I don't know if that's right. fun. Frankie Donnie. 
Frankie Donnie, sure. Donnie? Yeah, okay. we'll stick with Frankie Donnie. He goes into California and arrives there in late 1849, stays until 1850 around the San Jose area. So there's uh, in San Jose, which is just south of San Francisco, he is looking for gold like everyone else was at this time. F Frankie, having experienced such bad loss and feeling like he's got nothing to lose, was a very protective man of his very, very limited fortune. Right. There's a story that uh, made national news because he got in a tussle with a fellow searcher for gold, uh, and the details are fairly sparse, but eventually, essentially, there was a tussle between another searcher for gold Mm -hmm. And Frankie essentially killed him <laughs> oh. after getting oh, in a fight okay. with this man. Uh, so this is what the news were. So this man escaped essentially to the Sierra Nevada mountains to never be seen again after this murder. Okay. Right. Probably, probably a good maneuver. Probably a good move. And, you know, at this point, it's still the wild, wild west. Yeah. Western United States or just the California territory. Mm -hmm. uh, but this did make national news to the point where it reached the Mississippi. This was uh, post uh, a clipping from the St. Louis Evening Post, the newspaper, fun fact, that would eventually become the Post-Dispatch. So the St. Louis Evening Post posted in March 27th of 1850. He, the, the headline reads, Traveling Teuton Kills Man in Search for Gold. Nice. In the mad search for gold in the Sierra Nevada mountains, Austrian-born Frank Donitz fell for the metallic madness and struck Raymond Fisher, San Jose native, who succumbed to his injuries in the days following the event. A little further down, it says, Santa Clara County authorities lined the post informing their unfruitful efforts to find Mr. Donitz. So <laughs> this this article just says, this man killed a man in what they called metallic madness. I was going to say, they're like, it was the gold. The gold made him do it. <laughs> <laughs> Inhaled too much gold dust, went crazy, and ran off to the Sierra Nevada mountains. That's all well and good. At this point, you'd think, oh, Frank is, is off somewhere, never to be seen again. But how is he going to get rich? This man can't die till he gets rich. Oh, well, Kurt, I, let's just say that having killed a man is not terribly uh, lucrative in order to build your fortune. But we'll get to that. Around two years goes by. And two years after this fact, in the San Jose or the Santa Clara County Bounty Board, so the place where you would post your bounties searching for fugitive criminals. Nice. High score, leaderboard. <laughs> well, two years, two years goes by and his... Bounty is still there Ooh, in the Santa Clara County uh, Bounty Board. However, this is where I want to take a quick break to tell you about Wild West Bounty Board Law, oh, which please. I think is fascinating. Please. All right. So when we think of bounties and bounty boards, we think of what video games, we think of movies that, you know, you have the sheriff goes up, post a bounty with a rough sketch and last known location of a certain person. And Wanted that's dead that. or alive. Right, exactly. That's actually, that is true. That is how it works. However, it's a little more institutional than that, especially in a fairly, uh, in, a, in a bigger town like San Jose or mm -hmm. San Francisco would be. So in these towns, considering there's more people and a lot more potential fugitive crimes, there is an expiration of bounties, mm. Okay. So considering most criminals that get put on bounty boards never get caught. So if you have a bounty and you're being searched for, 
there's already an expectation that you're not going to be found. Right. They essentially had the system where after some time, depending on the crime you committed, there was an expiration for your crimes. Yeah. Or for your bounty. Yeah, it's, right? it's funny. You know, it makes sense because at a certain point, if they haven't found you, they're probably not going to. And they've got to manage yeah. their resources. But it also makes it where if you commit a lesser crime, you can just kind of hide out for a little while. Yeah. And then come back. And that's, that's exactly it, Kurt. You do have a bunch of resources, not just uh, lawmen, but also bounty hunters searching. Mm -hmm. And also, frankly, just the use of ink and paper <laughs> and, and maybe artists to do a rendition of who you look like. They're right? like, we need this wall space here. Yeah. I'll, let, me, let me just tell you that there was also, depending on the crime, that determined how long your bounty was set to expire. Right. And this is the, the crime the crime tier list, okay. if you will, Very by cool. time. So if you were to kill an animal that belonged to someone else, mm -hmm. right? So an animal that was property of someone else, a useful animal of someone else. Right. So like cattle, cattle yeah. horse, the bounty would be up for one and a half weeks. One and a half okay? weeks? That's it? Right, right, right. But, but that's for killing, okay? For stealing someone else's useful animal the bounty would stay up for three weeks oh which i think long but i know but i think that's just really lovely that the assumption that if you kill the animal yeah that's a bad offense but at least no one gets to use it but it's but it, you're not going to take anything useful and use it for your own pretense no 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 listen right? i i let me explain it to you Luis. i i got let me put the rural brand on this because it actually does kind of make sense to me i okay. think they're like Look, sometimes in life, you're just going to have to end up killing someone else's horse or cow. And like, tough yeah. luck if you do. You get a little slap <laughs> on the wrist. But stealing, that's bad. You should never be stealing someone else's animal. But you might have to like shoot someone's horse at some point in a bar fight. Mm. So we don't really want to come down on you hard for that. You kind of just like get out of town for a week or so. Yeah. I think that's what it is. They're just like, hey, I you guess... know what? If you're not tr like being greedy, we get it. It, it can happen. Little fender bender, so be it. <laughs> so be it. I find this one fairly interesting. Uh, there was uh, a crime called disturbance under God. Oh. Which, uh, when I read a little further, it's essentially terrorism. Okay. So if you decide to like rob, no, like to burn a bank ah. or, or burn someone's house mm -hmm. and things like that or, or deface something beyond repair, that was known as disturbance under God. Interesting. Uh, that way your bounty would be up for one month. Wow. Yeah. The uh, interestingly, the most intense one was murder. If you murdered mm -hmm. someone, your bounty would be up for one that year. That still doesn't seem like very long. Again, remember that these bounty po posters were the last resort. That's right. Right. That's so, so th at, at this point, you ha will have already started an investigation, and this is your final call. That hopefully some bounty hunter will mm -hmm. take this. Like this is, this is the bounty boards are essentially saying, local official authorities failed. Right. And now we're giving it to the public to to deal with it, right? Yeah. Interestingly, after the second murder, the time goes up by two. Okay. Right? So if you kill one person, you get one year mm -hmm. bounty up. If you kill two people, you st it stays there for another year. Okay. After after the third one, it goes up to four years. Oh. The bounty stays up. But if you kill five people, it will stay up indef indefinitely. <laughs> okay, that's good they cut it you're, off. Because I was like, what if somebody, yeah, you know, yeah. does like a big, big shootout, 30 people dead. It's, they got to like go around right. and count all and like, 
We never got this high. Check in the in the back of the book in the index. <laughs> what happens? If, okay, we start multiplying by five at a certain point. Right. Yeah. No. After after five people, and I think this was pretty pretty fair. If you kill more than five people, you will be one of the most hunted people. Yeah. <laughs> in at least your county, right? Yeah. Uh, interestingly, uh, they did have also the crime of infanticide or motherly infanticide. So if a mother ah. killed their child, that would be two years up in the bounty board interesting interestingly so i think that was seen that was seen as as, as the big no-no just motherly infanticide but that's beyond the beside the point yeah well now, they they probably had that uh because it would have been like a preventative measure for abortions actually because you'd, you'd be probably, having people getting like accidentally pregnant and they want to like really strongly yeah. discourage that so that's probably why because then they they right. label the crime infanticide i think yeah, and, and I think there's a, a, a line of sexism and misogyny going after women of saying, oh, if you're a woman that kills their own child, you're hysterical, you know, things yeah. like that. Well, it's also, we're clearly not in a time period of, like, separation of church and state since, you know, one of oh, our crimes was disturbance directly underneath God. D d yeah, disturbance Make, Making a God. mess in God's front lawn, put the poster up <laughs> for four months. <laughs> <laughs> one month one, Kurt, month, one, one month, month sorry please. one month not too much we're not no, so no, no. a little bit of separation of church and state they're just like kind of touching pinkies listen kurt if you're far away from god's sight you're also far away from his love this is what i'm <laughs> gonna say and now uh a couple of of interesting facts now that i'm more on the subject of bounty law if you had committed a crime after your bounty went up and it was a confirmed crime you couldn't tack up another bounty like a separate oh. bounty sheet, except if it was a confirmed murder. If mm. your bounty card was up and within that year you committed another murder, you would have another bounty that includes the second murder just tacked right on top of your other one. Ah, L Literally tacked on. Uh, you would just have it. So you can tell how bad a criminal is by just how many different sheets they would have on their bounty just on top, like a like a Rolodex yeah, of yeah. <laughs> crime. But it was only in case of murder. And interestingly, if you ran out of space in your bounty board because you, I don't know, you have a lot of criminals in your town, right. you wouldn't just throw others away. You would make a bigger bounty board mm. and you would place new boards and keep adding them. And depending on how long this bounty board was in your town, was a bit of a sign of how good or how bad <laughs> your <laughs> your town was when it comes to crime. And this is actually, there's some theories that this is where the term boardwalk comes from. Interesting. Right? So right now we think of boardwalk as something seaside. Yeah. And that started up in New Jersey mm -hmm. with Atlantic City. Mm -hmm. However, in the West, a boardwalk was just the place where you would see, ah. it, it started to become synonymous yeah. on how bad or how good your town yeah. was. You know, like a long or a short boardwalk, things like that. Yeah. That's not confirmed, but I like I like to be a dreamer. Interesting. Now that this has been said, the one other important fact of the bounty boards is that if you really wanted to, you could pay local authorities to keep your bounties up for longer. Right? So okay. if you if you if you wanted to keep a bounty poster up past its expiration date, you yeah. could pay. In order to keep it up there. Oh, oh, but not and, like for your own bounty poster. Like, oh no, Kurt, don't be silly. Okay, well, I, that, I thought that's what you were saying. I was like, you no, wanna, no, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> I want them to keep searching for me, the cowards. Don't break the streak. 
High score, come on. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, anyway, so if you if you had a, a certain amount of money, you could say, hey, I'm going to pay to keep this bounty poster up. Right. Typically didn't result on the criminal actually getting caught. But if anything, it made the families feel like they had some agency yeah. in trying to procure justice. So after two years, this man, uh, Frankie Donnie, going back to him, right. his poster was still up. If he only killed one man, why was his poster still up after two years? Well, turns out Frankie Donnie had killed the nephew of a certain San Jose businessman called J.M. Fisher. Oops. And so J.M. Fisher was a man of, of, I mean, as rich as you could be in San Jose, California in 1849. Right. Don't think it's that much. But he had enough money to keep that bounty up because his nephew was killed. In time, there was talks that there was some assaulting of a general goods store owner in Modesto, California, which is not terribly far from San Jose. And the person that assaulted this general goods owner essentially almost left this man left for dead and then ran off to the nearby town of Stockton, California. And the person essentially matched what had been on the news for Frankie Donnie, mm. right? So this businessman, J.M. Fisher, says, well, I think we have a lead on Frankie Donnie, yeah. and we're going to go after him. So he sends his own brother, a certain J.M. Fisher. Okay. He sends him out to, to, to go find Frankie Donnie and finally bring justice to his murdered nephew. Yes. Now, details are, are scarce after this, um, uh-huh. but essentially what we know is that as soon as J.M. Fisher gets to Stockton, California, searching for Frankie Donnie, he finds him out in a camp somewhere hiding. And again, details are, are not the, the best, but essentially the same thing happens than two years prior. There's a tussle between Frankie Donnie and J.M. Fisher, oh. and J.M. Fisher dies. Like, J.M. Fisher gets killed by Frankie Donnie. They got to learn their lesson. You can't, I mean, they do. You got, don't mess with Frankie Donnie. The man, he's not going to die right. till he gets rich, okay? He's just <laughs> he's, not. Well, at, at this point, considering he's been a criminal on the run for the last two years, he is going to have a hard time getting out of this country without being no, seen. No, all, all according to plan, Luis. You don't understand. He's, he's, he's big business mogul. He's playing the long con. It's, he is playing the long con. It's those he's, Austrians, he's man. He's buying the deepest dip in his own life. <laughs> Right. <laughs> He's buying solo, hoping that it will there will be an uptick. Now, after he kills this second man, Frankie Donnie has two thoughts in his head. First, oh crap. Right. Now now I won't be able to leave. But second, notices that J.M. Fisher has a striking resemblance to himself. Oh. So Frankie Donnie says, I am going to to devise this plan. I've killed the bounty hunter that was coming after me. Right. And I noticed that he has essentially my same build, my same face features. He's a very similar looking man to me. Mm-hmm. With a last name like Fisher, well, he's of German descent too. So there's going to be some similarity here. Right. So he's going to become J.M. Fisher and turn Whoa. actual J.M. Fisher in ass Frankie Donnie. No. <laughs> and collect the bounty Collect the bounty in order to secure enough money to leave the country. What did I tell you? All according to plan, Luis. Yeah, yeah. So he just 
All this man wants to do now is go back to Austria. His American experiment failed horribly. <laughs> and th he sees this as the perfect way out. And again, this man has hit rock bottom. He has nothing to lose. Right. So he says, screw it. This is probably like my only chance. I'm going to take this opportunity and leave. And by passing as another German sounding name, he's going to be able to leave the country without any suspicion. Right. Now, this plan, Kurt, works. The yes. madman did it. Yes. So he dresses up and he passes again through Stockton, California, the town where he was hiding in before uh -huh. he went out to camp and got the bounty hunter killed. And everyone in the town just thought it was the same bounty hunter that had come <laughs> in. And everyone just let him through. I mean, sure, with a body in his in his uh, horse, kind right. of like in video games, right? Everyone's like, okay, yeah, this man just came through. Let him pass. He's going back to San Jose. Well, you would. I mean, it would be such a leap of the imagination to think otherwise because right, you right, like, you might look at him and be like Did, didn't he have a different nose but you're much more likely to think like i probably just didn't look yesterday than to think like right. oh he the guy killed him and took his identity because they happened to look right. extremely similar yeah and and it, it, again it's such a stupid just stupid idea so stupid that it worked it's hiding in plain sight yeah he even passes through modesto modesto california the town where the general goods manager was almost killed by Frankie Donnie, and he passes without a peep. So he passes through Modesto and heads straight to San Jose to find his uh, reward. And again, it works. He turns in. Uh, he goes to the local authorities' office, throws the body, collects his reward. Really no questions asked. Easy That's kind peasy. of how, the, how bounty hunting was at this mm -hmm. point. You essentially were trustworthy, and you had to provide proof that it was indeed the other person right. and considering Frankie Donnie has his own forms of identification he could just say this is me <laughs> right this is Frankie Donnie uh, and he left without a peep now he says that he's finally going to leave decides to go down to Los Angeles to catch a boat up to wherever he can oh Probably if only had gone China. east he could have completed the loop you know no Kurt I mean at this point this man is oh, I understand. seriously I understand but you know could have been neato it could have been neato Kurt <laughs> but we can't always get what we want that's right? true now he begins going to L.A. and starting organizing or finding ways to hop on a ship back to China and so that he could back to, go back to Austria. Mm -hmm. At this point, news of the capture of Frankie Donitz, the Teuton man who came to the United States and murdered after metallic madness, <laughs> it's making some rounds in local news. and, and the He's got local gold papers, fever. So he's got gold fever, and he's finally been brought to justice. <laughs> Frankie Donny, a man who had prided himself in having no distinguishable German accent, started talking as if he was a J.M. Fisher saying, yeah, I did it. Nice. What about it? To try to, to win people's favor so that he could hop on a ship. At this point, the only ships that would take you back and forth were cargo ships, so you had to convince people to, to take you onto the ship, right? Mm. Now, also, at, at this point in time, considering the gold rush, the California gold rush is in full effect, if you were a foreigner... It was unless, unlikely that they asked for any sort of documentation for you to leave. Right. Because no one really cares. Yeah. Everyone just sees you as an outsider. And at this point, it was just honor system. Especially, too, if you came in for the gold rush, you'd probably change your name. So at this point, you're going to give them whatever name. They're just going to trust you. Yeah. They're like, look, what we know is the gold is here somewhere and you're going not yeah. here. So that means more gold for us? Question mark. Right. Right. And, and you see, once people were leaving, they said, oh, 
well, it's not it's not our concern to verify your identity. It's the other country's concern. So right. whatever, you know, <laughs> this was the, the time of, of loose immigration. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, this is where it gets a little funky okay. because bec- he, he arranges for a ship to take him from L.A. up to China. Now, a couple of days, about a day before his ship is scheduled to leave, federal marshals apprehend him. No, Frankie, no. And, and, and take him essentially to the, the law offices of Los Angeles, of the town that is at this point. They, well, that would become they, Los they Angeles. They like found him out or they, did they apprehend him for something else? This is what happened. Ah. The harbor master or the, the person in charge of the harbor of L.A., mm-hmm. where you kind of had to get connections in order to leave, knew of Fisher. Of the original Fisher. Oh. Or like or like knew him. Yeah. Like yeah. did wasn't close close with him, but knew of him up yeah. in San Jose, considering he was a traitor. And he sent him a telegraph line saying, Hey, I think you 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 need to see this, right? Mm-hmm. This man is talking about how he apprehended him, and he's going around to everyone saying that he did this and this and this. Immediately, Fisher doesn't do anything else but calls the authorities so that the authorities get down from uh, to apprehend him in Los Angeles. And that's because what Frankie Donnie failed to consider is that, yes, Fisher is a German descendant last name. However, the Fisher family that lived in San Jose was not a German family. What? No, nor were they an American family. J.M. Fisher, sorry, J.L. Fisher, yeah. the patriarch of this whole ordeal, JL stands for Jose Luis. <laughs> and the person he's trying to steal his identity, JM, Juan Manuel Fisher. No. These people were people that had immigrated from Germany to the, at that point, Mexico. Right. The Mexican colony of the Upper Californias. Right. And settled and settled there. And considering that part of the U.S. did not become the U.S. until 1848, by 1849, 1850, a lot of the people up there were still Mexican, mm-hmm. including J.M. and J.L. Fisher, right? who got their money through trade. But at the end of the day, they were Mexican citizens. So when the patriarch Fisher finds out about this man passing for his son, boasting in perfect English that he was... Uh, the person that brought the other person to justice, yeah. Fisher is like, well, no, not no not way. perfect English, even worse, English with a German accent. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, well, um, if he had been speaking Spanish with a German accent, maybe easier to understand. But no, uh, this man is not him. So he gets apprehended and essentially gets gets to the authorities. And the man, Frankie Donnie, who tried to pass as a Mexican citizen, on accident, gets on accident gets finally hanged in in San Diego, actually. He got brought down to San Diego from L.A. He gets hanged for his crimes of fraud, of murder, of two counts of murder, and running away from the police and impersonating other people. And he got killed without, A, making any money, and without, <laughs> B, ever seeing his homeland again. Yeah, that, I'll say it. That was not according to plan. The, that, the bit at the end... <laughs> Not part of the plan. Not part of the long con. Not part of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's lovely. I think uh, having uh, the Fishers purposefully go by JL and JM yeah. was a strategy now that the U.S. had acquired those territories to not seem so Mexican, right? Yeah. So he didn't take into account 
the conflicting politics of Mexican-U.S. relations when he arrived in 1849 for the California gold rush. Yeah, there, there's... Sure looked into it a little more. There's something amazing about, like, the massively lucky coincidence of killing the bounty hunter coming for you and discovering you look like him, and then to yeah. find out that that comes with the massively unlucky coincidence of that he's not German when you'd have every reason to think he was. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really bizarre. It's, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like most of these stories where they're super weird, the the main character is either like our, our whalebone CEO where from a past story I told where they just, you know, everything they do is successful or just everything they do is yeah. unsuccessful. But yeah, Frankie Donnie got like one of each, you know? And you see uh, this story actually resounded across national news i mean naturally yeah. this was such a a ludicrous story that this was one of the things that pushed the anti-west resentment in the east or in the central part of the u.s mm. there was some resentment to california and half of mexico being ceded to the united states and so those lands were still seen as a wild mythical place essentially yeah. removed from everything that makes the united states the united states yeah and so for years Stories like this one that emerge from things like the California gold rush would keep the East and West separated culturally, socially mm -hmm. in in American mentality, you know, and, and that went on still for a couple more years, even during the Civil War, when California was essentially not wasn't doing much, you know, but uh, figuring out how to become a, a part of the United States. I feel like I would love to experience the, the pure joy of you know, being like someone who's a New York elite at that time, looking down on the West Coast and like reading yeah. that story and having all the things you've said confirm that it's like truly just absolutely a circus over there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Greatest and, and day of your life. You know, this was also one of the reasons why uh, Manifest Destiny was so strong to send people to the West because they're like stories like this. It just gold in the hills makes people mad these sort of, <laughs> of mountains make people mad we need less of this but hey what's life if not just a little bit of metallic madness right i think we're, we're taking the joy away true from metallic it's madness. nice to know that people will always be panicked about something like whatever the new thing is mm -hmm. they'll be like the gold is driving all the kids wild mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> all right kurt next story we're going to not go too far ahead. So last story was mid-1800s, 1850s, 1851. This next story is going to take us to 1902 England. Boom. Very exciting. Hold for applause. <laughs> <laughs> Let me set the scene. It's 1902. Queen Victoria is dead. No. <laughs> and uh, in, so Queen Victoria died in 1901, just on the other side of the finish line for the 19th century. Right. And Queen Victoria was crowned as a very, very young child, or as a teenager, basically. Mm -hmm. And while her coronation was fairly humble, it was her reign that marked an entire era in the British Empire's history. We call it to this day, obviously, the Victorian right. era. But this was an era of just increased growth to a level that the world had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Not only did this coincide with the Industrial Revolution, but at the same time, the conquering of India right. and India having its own protectorate, the growing of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth grew to its maximum extension at this point. L least to say, Queen Victoria was a force to be trifled yeah. with, right? This was, this was a reign that 
I mean, to this day, it's still getting talked talked about with a lot of reverence and a lot of respect. Now, toward the end of her reign, during her gold and her diamond jubilees, most of the parties celebrated were meant or designed to to support and to cement the cultural and social hegemony that the British Empire had on the world, mm. right? So when the, these parties within the country, within England happened, it was to signify, we are England, yay England. You know what's great about Britain? It's that it's great. <laughs> so that's what, um, that's what these parties were meant to represent. So when she died in 1901, people naturally were very confused and worried to where this would continue. Right. The British population was lucky, or at least, at least they they had some relief with the upcoming uh, heir apparent, which was to, with the person that would become King Edward VII. Edward was a very popular guy. He was a pretty old for him uh, for his time. He was a 59 year old man that loved to party, nice, and was very big, very big friends with just everyone all right good enough put him in there get him in there yeah he hung out with poor the rich he loved big meals loved cigars this man was like peak image of british decadence and everyone was into it you know he was a bit of a rock star and at 59 years old he was one of the older uh kings to be crowned so they believed that this man was going to continue the train that Queen Victoria started uh, around 67 years prior. So they organized his coronation to be on the year after Queen Victoria's death on June 26th. Okay. Now, everyone was preparing for this new coronation. This was going to signify the close of a wonderful age and beginning the new British Empire uh, more powerful than before, a great yes. way to kickstart this next century. It's going to be a banger. It's going to be good. People are excited. It is 1902. Nothing could go wrong. We're never going <laughs> to die. You know, It's that kind of vibe. Now, this naturally became international news. Everyone was excited about the coronation of the new king. Right. This was going to be the global event, kind of like the recent coronation of the now King Charles III. Everyone's talking about it. And even more in 1902, mm -hmm. when information traveled even slower. If you hear in the Americas that this is going to be the biggest party that the world has ever seen, you're going to get excited. Yeah. You know, because your mind is going to get really hyped. So there was hype all across the world about the coronation of King Edward VII. Now, who decided to capitalize on this? There was a new technology in the land that was taking over. Do you want to take a guess at what this new technology that was innovating in the early 1900s, Kurt? I'm going to guess radio, but might be a little early. Yeah, actually, by early 1900s, the hip new technology of the time was moving pictures, Kurt, Ooh. through film. This was just essentially the groundwork. The most innovative, the, the newest technology was moving pictures. And who was the peak inventor of films at this point? It was a French man called Georges Méliès. You may know this man. Mm -hmm. Might be a, a name that sounds familiar to you, but Georges Méliès, considered the, the father of, of film and the moving pictures. Yeah. He decides to capitalize on this says he says hey the world is an ex is expectant to see what's going to happen i will make it happen i will make it so and thus he goes up to westminster abbey he goes up to the royal authorities and says hey guys how possible would it be 
to record and film this coronation. Nice. Westminster Abbey authorities and royal authorities look at, look at him straight in the face and say, no, you idiot. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. For a couple of reasons. One, the machine would make a lot of noise. You're going to have to crank the film True. camera, and that's going to be very loud for uh, such a solemn celebration as was the coronation of King Edward VII. And second, I mean, it's still early 1900s. Yeah, we may be now in the industrial world, but the the... The English don't really trust the French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. they, don't want a, they don't want a French man here in Westminster Abbey. And even George Melier, after hearing this denial, he says, that's okay, Westminster Abbey was going to be too dark anyway to film anything. <laughs> in here. So he decides, screw you guys, I'm going to make my money anyway. I'm going to stage this coronation. Nice. He says, I'm going to make this coronation. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it filmable so that the whole world can <laughs> see it and I can earn my money. And he decides to stage film. He decides to make one of his most lavish films to date. However, he also decides that he's going to film it. He's going to prepare this. And he's going to cut it and edit it and have it released on the same day as the coronation for the world to oh, see. Oh, wow. In order so to... He's going to have to be guessing what the coronation looks like? He went through a bunch of, I guess, documents and tried to understand what the coronation was going to look like. And he tried to recreate it to a T. But also, let's remember, these coronation events last around an hour and a half, maybe more. Right. And this man, early film, couldn't really go much longer than seven minutes. Ten-minute film at this point, Kurt, was huge. And he decided, okay, I'm going to cut down the hour and a half to about seven minutes. So Just the highlights. It's condensed. It's an abridged version (laughs) of the coronation. But he was going to present it as if it was a live version of the coronation to the world. You could just do, uh, uh, here's the whole coronation, but it's on ten times speed. (laughs) Everyone's (laughs) just moving like Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, they're just um, flying. <laughs> um, now, this, this, was, this was great for him. The, the film was scheduled to premiere on June 26th when the coronation was set to happen. And it was going to premiere in France. And then it was going to be uh, sent out to the emergent movie theaters uh, across the globe, which weren't many. It was probably like five. Mm. But this is a very French maneuver. <laughs> very French maneuver. Respect. And though. see, this was this man's most realistic film to date. Because if you have any idea of wow. the other of the other films that George Melier did, the one that he's the most popular or most well known for is The Journey to the Moon, where he gets yeah. a bunch of people in like a giant bullet that shoots to the moon and the moon gets a bullet stuck in its eye. Yeah. Like he was known for making these fanciful stories, also stories based on Jules Verne's stories. So this was a, a big move for Frenchman George Melier and said, I'm going to make it realistic. This is going to be matched to the T. I'm going to recreate Westminster Abbey in my backyard, and none of you can stop me. And he did. <laughs> he did. So he gets the film done, and he's ready mm-hmm. to present it. However, on the 24th of June, right, two days before the coronation, a news release comes out from the royal family saying, Owing to the dangerous illness of the king, the coronation ceremonies had, at the 11th hour, been indefinitely postponed. (laughs) For what reason? Remember when I told you that King Edward loved to party? Yeah. He was a man that was known for eating and drinking and smoking a lot. Least to say, he got appendicitis. Oh! (laughs) Right? He got appendicitis about two days before the coronation was set to happen, so they canceled it. They postponed it, and they said, next one is going to be on August the 9th. 
So we're going to wait a couple months and we're going to have the coronation. But George Melier now had a better idea. He said, hold on, they're postponed the coronation, but it's too late to postpone the procession from all the different dignitaries, from all the different British colonies right. across the world that have traveled special just for this event. So I got a great idea. I'm going to go to London and film the procession. And he did. He goes to London, nice. films the procession, the procession in, the procession out. And then he goes back to his studio in France and edits real footage of the procession at the beginning and at the end of his coronation clip to add another sense of validity to this. A fun, a fun fact about this procession postponement and, and all of this is that a lot of people were getting really ready for this procession to the point that they had rented apartments on the path uh, of the procession. Yeah. And when it was postponed, there were about like 15 court cases of people saying, <laughs> what the hell? I paid money and now this is not going to happen. All of them were thrown in the trash by the yeah, royal authorities. <laughs> but anyway, George Melia records the procession, now has an even perfecter film, if you will. And on August 9th, on, of that same year, the film releases on the same day of the actual coronation. Nice. The film releases and it's a smash hit. Like it gets played for a weeks in the French theater that he premiered it in. And it gets sent to the to the United States. It gets sent to England, to different places. It gets sent to, to Germany or what it would now be Germany. And it's a huge hit. It's a huge hit. And the film actually portrayed the coronation to be much smoother than the actual coronation itself. Oh, <laughs> so it actually looks better. It's the TV version. Well, here's a couple of <laughs> things. Here's a couple of things that happened in the coronation that were cut from the film, to say it that way. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so the person that's supposed to put the crown on the king yeah. is the Bishop of Canterbury. Right. At this point in 1902, the Bishop of Canterbury is an old, old, senile, decrepit uh -oh. man. Okay, uh -oh. he is one of the most weak men that has ever existed, <laughs> and he is refusing any sort of assistance, or he is refusing to delegate any of his duties to any of his subordinates. He's saying, oh, "I am no. going to do this. I will crown this <laughs> king." He goes to put the crown on King Edward and puts it on backwards, <laughs> for starters, which wonderful. That's lovely. Nice. He then goes to kneel to show reverence to him and is unable to get up <laughs> so the king has he to just help feels him that get much back reverence. up he's just that deeply in he's the reverence. just so reverent he he cannot so get reverent. up not only that but also at one point since he was so old and so blind they had to print essentially the script for it in these huge huge sheets with giant font so that this poor oh, old get man, the man could a read teleprompter it. come on and not only that once the 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 son of the king comes to give him a hug or to give him a i think a kiss on the cheek is what the ceremony requires the king mm -hmm. like sh gave him a big hug as an affectionate that was not seen before also at one point the sister of the of king edward dropped a book very loudly during the ceremony during a very solemn ceremony mm. uh, and she was shunned mm. for it for the rest of her life anyway the ceremony <laughs> did not go great but what did go great was the showing of the George Melier movie of the coronation of Edward VII. It was right. such a smash hit, partly because 
of the actors. They said, these are some of the most wonderful actors. This feels like I'm there. The queen, the person that was hired to portray Queen Alexandra uh, was a actress from a famous Parisian theater company, and she was brought in to be Alexandra. However, I told you that the King Edward was a fairly rotund man. He was big, yes. he was huge, big beard, and essentially hot, just a big boy, just a big boy of a man. They could not Chonky find lad. they could not find someone to resemble King Edward. Who could play this absolute unit? Well, George Melier went to a bar, to a cantina in southern Paris, and he went to the bathroom, and the bathroom attendant looked just like Edward VII. <laughs> he looked at the bathroom attendant and said, you're mine. You're coming to my film. You're hired. And so this complete unknown, who was just a bathroom attendant, starred in one of the biggest early movies, uh, the, the biggest stars of early movie history, to the point where he became one of the leading early movie stars in subsequent French silent films. Wow. Uh, just a lavatory attendant that looked a lot like King Edward. And what does looking a lot That'll like King it, Edward apparently. mean? Just big bearded man that was also fat. You know? <laughs> like, that was all that it took. And he was essentially, I mean, this is not the, the era of movie stars yet. I guess he was just a, a movie star. <laughs> the, the only yeah. one uh, but yeah he existed and he went on to become again one of the greatest actors quote unquote of early yeah. french cinema but only because he had this incredible resemblance uh to king edward and yeah. his uh, big rotundity you know i could see how that could happen with this being such a major movie because i think a lot of times when you have someone who becomes like a hit actor and they're kind of being cast in one role. I mean, I think the, the movies they're in contribute to that brand as much as their actual acting. Like this mm -hmm. movie was a really major movie and it painted the portrait of like, this guy is playing the king mm -hmm. and everybody saw that. So then after that, it immediately puts him at like this level of, of stardom that wasn't previously seen, probably because there wasn't a movie done quite to that scale yeah. previously seen. And you know what? This movie was very influential. It was never portrayed as if it was the actual coronation. I think it was explicitly said it was going to be a simulacra, a simulacrum of this, of this event. However, a lot of people... Even if you tell them what the truth is, they're not going to believe it. So a lot of people believe that this was the actual simulation or the actual coronation of King Edward. And it brought the image of this royal figure, this larger-than-life royal figure, across the world for the world to see. And people have argued, historians have argued, that this film is one of the main reasons why King Edward's reign was so influential or seen as equal to that of Queen Victoria, even to the point of coining the phrase Edwardian period. Wow. Despite Edward's reign only lasting six years. Like, wow. Edward did not last a long time, but yet we still consider Edwardian period and Edwardian fashion and things of the sort. And historians argue that it's because of this film that recreated, uh, recreated a coronation and made the world hope or think or believe that they were living in a, in a magical fairy tale place. That's that is like just England. classic 
that the that the monarchy you know laughed this guy out the door and then proceed yeah. to massively benefit from his efforts <laughs> exactly exactly and and then the the there wouldn't be any sort of recreation or televisation of any other royal ceremony until the coronation of queen elizabeth ii right and so what what happened after the six years did he i guess he was pretty old so did he just die yeah he died <laughs> I mean, remember <laughs> that he he got appendicitis as soon as he right. was about to become king. He was not riddled, a good sign. He was riddled with not really. Uh, it was a miracle that he survived, but he was riddled with disease and loved smoking, loved eating, and mm-hmm. was known for drinking a lot. So he didn't really last much much longer. He died at the age of sixty five. So um, I guess that was pretty good for the time. But considering his mom lasted until she was like 80 something um I don't Some, know. they got it in the genes all the all the, the women who become queens are just like eternal mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah this man this one this man was famous and popular and some could say that the reason the monarchy still lasted as long as it did was because of the push that it received from george millier and his bathroom attendant actor because of a little movie magic with the help of the janitor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, Kurt, those are the two stories uh, I have for you today. A little tales of deception, mild deception in some cases, and great deception in other cases. So in case you forgot, the story you just heard about now was about how a bathroom attendant became the biggest movie star in early movie history due to recreating a perfect scene from the coronation of King Edward VII. And the other story was poor Frank Donitz, who thought that he could get into the gold business, to the gold industry, and succeeded only in dying, I guess. (laughs) His own hubris caught back up to him. Kurt. He was so, so close and yet so far. Yet you know? so far. The wow, ma- wow, metallic wow. madness got to all of us, Kurt. Oh, man, he OD'd on gold. That's Ugh, tough. Tough. So what do you <laughs> think, Kurt? What do you think of what I just told you? What are your thoughts? Oh, man, I really love both of these stories. I, I did not think that it was possible to... Uh, and, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe people will judge me for this, but I didn't think it was possible to have more fun than the, the uh, Wild West try-to-get-rich-or-die-trying story with the uh, bounty hunter uh, 101 in the middle there. <laughs> but, but, and yet, and yet then somehow we went up from there. So honestly, I, I have a lot of, a lot of thoughts uh, that I want to talk about. So let's, let's yeah. move on. Let's do it. To uh, our favorite, least favorite part of this podcast, which is deliberation. All right, Kurt. So stories of deception, stories of doppelgangers, stories of lookalikes. What do you think? Okay. So let's start with our, our, Frankie Donnie story. This this story is so much detail into it, and you're you're citing a lot of sources, which I'm sure you consciously did, or maybe it's just just uh, the journalist in you. But you know, not only is the plot really complex, where it's like you know we're on this continent, now we're on this continent. Maybe we get rich here. Oops, killed that guy, <laughs> and then another one. You know, it's it's twisty and turny uh, right up until the end is just beautiful like i said about how he's somehow both the luckiest and the unluckiest guy at the same time and then on top of that you know all the supporting details just really make it feel super duper real as well as um the twist with the names that's that's pretty amazing so if you came up with that big big credit now let me let me move on to talk about the second story okay the second story also it feels like 
like the plot has a lot of turns where we, we keep going in a lot of different directions. And interestingly, I'm a big fan of the show The Crown. So I feel mm. like I'm, you know, armchair expert on, on the royal family now. <laughs> I was thinking about, of course, they wouldn't let the guy film the 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 coronation because they're just like so resistant to any change of tradition right. just like the idea of like modern technology being in there like no way but you kind of didn't even touch on that so i was thinking like that's that's interesting that you know that them turning him away makes sense to me uh and if there's it was probably like for a lot of reasons i'm sure they didn't like outright tell him that uh but so that that implied to me that the story seems really, really real. Looked at him and straight then, in the course, face and said, get out of here, Frenchie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I did have a, a weird little note that uh, the the sick notice postponing the coronation. Okay, let me ask you this, actually. What, what yeah. year was the coronation in? Just to clarify. 1902. Yeah, 1902. Okay, so in the sick note postponing the coronation, they said at the 11th hour... And I think maybe that phrase comes from when the, the uh, armistice of World War I was signed... I don't know if the phrase the 11th hour would exist yet. So I was thinking on that. That gave me that gave me a bit of pause. But the thing is, the rest of the story feels extremely real. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, if you came up with this plot of like them turning him away and then him making this coronation video that's like better than they could have imagined and them hugely profiting from that, like that, that feels like too, too real to be it sounds stupid to say but too real to be made up like <laughs> it's just like that's how things play out in real life in a way that like you wouldn't predict but when you see it you're like yeah that's it so yeah i mean either way i'll say i'm i'm very impressed like i'm really in the weeds here on on which it is because both of them are are just really full stories and i really loved both of them but i think that i'm gonna overlook my concerns of the 11th hour phrasing and say that i think that the uh, staged movie magic coronation video that uh, made our bathroom attendant a star <laughs> is the true story. And uh, I believe that you have come up with Frankie Donnie and uh, the accidental German-Mexican mix-up. And of course, we got, we got Austria in there. It's got. It's always got to be Austria. Well, you right? know what? Now it's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my final answer. <laughs> well, Kurt, uh, having chosen the accidental bathroom attendant movie star story, I am happy to tell you that you are correct, Kurt. That is true. Woo! That is a true story. That did happen. The coronation was indeed postponed. And what they mean by the 11th hour is that literally at 11 p.m., they decided they were going to postpone ah, it. Ah, interesting. Like, yeah, that's just that. I mean, at the eleventh hour, that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, they decided, essentially, saying at the last minute they were going yeah. to to postpone, uh, and they did postpone it two days before the coronation, which gave George Melier the opportunity to go record the beginning and the end of the procession to add into his own movie and make the movie or give the movie that realistic touch that he wanted the movie to have that brought it to be wow. the biggest movie of its time. But it is true. The guy the guy was an entrepreneur, you know, as as someone who who does does some some film work myself. I can really respect that he's like there's a parade happening. Hang I'm on, in. let's go get that. Like <laughs> but that that also is super cool, you know, to be in the time before people are really thinking about like, oh, you need a permit to film this parade when you could just be like Hey, the coronation parade is happening. Let me just bring the camera and make a movie that will like make me famous. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, yeah, and maybe no, I love that. Not necessarily that it make him famous, but it made 
the concept of movies and, and yeah. films really realistic. Because at the time, it was seen almost as a as a gadget, as as kind of the new hip thing that no one really took seriously. Yeah. This was the first time when people realized there was a greater practical purpose to it other than just funsies, you know? Well, I also don't think that he was, like, trying to make himself or even, like, filmmaking famous. I think he just, you know, wanted to make the best movie he could, which I also would feel like, oh, this is amazing, you know? Who else is going to have, like, a parade in their movie? But it's really cool that it was in a time period when it was as amazing to the world as it was to him. Because, you know, if, you, if you're if you a filmmaker and you love filmmaking, when you, like, go get the, the coronation parade shot, it yeah. kind of feels like discovering fire. But right. in that moment where the world does not is not aware of like moving pictures and blockbuster movies and stuff. And you can see the coronation. That would be amazing. So I, I guess I, I kind of envy that he yeah. got to, to film this amazing thing. And then it was as cool to everyone else as and, it was to him. And it's pretty interesting because he did do all this recording. The movie does exist. You can find recordings of this online. Yeah. Like, it's not lost media, uh, which is really funny to see because it's so interesting that this is what propelled Edwardian era out into the rest of the world because it's such yeah. a boring six or seven minutes, Kurt. And I think it's just, to, we have to remember just the historical context with this movie exists because seeing it now, it is almost a little hard to watch. That said, too, the parade and the procession that this man went to go record, that has disappeared. Oh. So that has become lost media. We are yet to find right. a piece of this lost media. However, yeah, we, can, surviving copy, yeah. we can be sure that King Edward actually had seen the film as well and sent a letter, a handwritten letter to George Melier saying, this was pretty good. Thanks. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Everyone got to see it, including the king that it was meant to be representing. That's good. Again, that he got to enjoy and benefit from the thing that he fought tooth and nail against mm -hmm. from the start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> classic. Absolutely yeah. classic. Well, tell me tell me about, about Frankie Donnie, Luis. Was there was there any truth in there or what, what did you come up with? Uh, I will tell you that I believe I'm looking at my notes and looking at the story I wrote. Uh, I did write the majority of it. I... Uh, the only real part of it, Kurt, is California Gold Rush and right. the towns of San Jose, Stockton, and Modesto. That's right. the only real <laughs> things from that story. Frank Donitz didn't really exist or at all. That was an, an invention on my part. Bounty boards that I invented bounty law for this. Maybe there's some truth to it, but I didn't do any research. I just oh, no. went for you it. You made up the bounty boards? I, I did oh, make the bounty boards. Uh, the disturbance under God crime. I <laughs> don't know. Oh. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> Man, I really thought the bounty board thing was independent of the story. This is, oh, this is like a, a fully fresh wound to me suddenly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I actually... Yeah, because, okay, because I was going to say when you're talking about, like, that it doesn't overwrite your bounty, I was like, so if I do, like, a little thing, like, kill someone's cow, and then what? what is, like, a much bigger thing that they don't like set a bank on fire like yeah. they won't put the bank on fire poster up because i already killed a cow that's that's but now it makes more sense that you just did not think that through <laughs> well no here's the thing i did think that through and i, and I wanted to make oh. it i wanted to make it as like weirdly bureaucratic weirdly bureaucratic process how yeah oh yeah you yeah. won't you won't get another crime added to you unless it's a confirmed murder because murder yeah. is the worst thing you can do. So that's why I, right. that's why I wrote it that way. Like I want well, it to just seem so oh, whatever. You're already killed a man, you're yeah. already being hunted. 
will only add something else if you're also being hunted. Yeah. Well, as you can see, like, I, you know, it was super believable, literally up till this moment. Even after yeah. I said I thought the story was false, I still thought all that was true. So, and, and I even thought of you with the killing other animals and stealing others' animals idea. Oh, yeah. Because I'm like, okay, well, if you kill an animal, naturally no one gets use out of it. But if you steal another, another person's animal, I feel like that's a bigger crime, frankly. That worked out for you. That, that, that little, yeah. little detail worked out for you well, huh? And had, uh, had me right on the line. I <laughs> salivating over there. When I was and see, because I wanted to do a story about doppelgangers, I was thinking, wouldn't it be really funny if there was a bounty hunter that got killed and then he was turned in as the bounty? And that was my, that my, was really good. That was that my was really beginning, the, the place where I started. So now it was an issue of trying to find how is this man going to turn himself in? And how is it going to go bad for him? Because it, it would be too perfect for him to just do it and leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like, OK, maybe he thinks that they're German, but then let's bring in migration to this. So that's why this man right. was German. Like initially, I didn't I didn't note that he was a German man from the beginning. I didn't even know mm. his name. But I'm like, OK, if we find people that have German ish, German sounding last names, but are actually Mexican, kind of like me. Right. Yeah. I feel like so that the, might work. Yeah. Yeah. So the and the bounty hunter's name was J.M. Fisher. What mm -hmm. was and what was his his brother's name? JL. JL. Yeah. So Jose Luis and Juan Manuel. That was just I was trying when I came up with that, I was trying to to invoke the old oil barons who just go like, I don't know, like there's there's there will be blood where the main guy's name is WB or WWH. Oh yeah, yeah. You know how they have those those early America uh sounding names. However, I don't know if you if you if someone is named Luis Esteban, you can go L E Higgins. That sounds kind of forced, right? So I wanted to them still with right. J, and I couldn't have J W because there's not a W name in, in right. <laughs> Spanish. So oh yeah, you know it was interesting because the it's like all the initials are J L and M, which are you and your dad's initials. Oh, uh, which which at one point when I was starting to think about that story, I was like, okay, Luis is thinking about like creating characters who are. German Mexicans, maybe he's thinking about himself, maybe subconsciously he and his father's initials get in there. So, I, but then I was curious. I thought maybe it was they were like, like actually like JM and JM Fisher and LM Fisher. And then I was going to be like, <laughs> you're getting lazy over here. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, so that was accidental then, I guess. That was accidental. Yeah. I just wanted to make it sound old timey, frankly. Mm, mm. And I guess. When it comes to the St. Louis Evening Post, yeah, I made that up. The Evening Post was a real paper that was then merged with the St. Louis Dispatch, which then formed There isn't the even Saint a St. Louis. Louis. There, actually, St. Louis was another fake place that I invented. It's just an urban legend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My I, mom I, used to say if I didn't eat all my vegetables, she'd send me to St. Louis, you know, but I think she just said that to scare me. Mostly. Yeah, I would have nightmares where I would wake up in St. Louis and, I don't know, it's <laughs> terrifying. Uh, Woke up in a cold sweat and saying, no, I don't want to go back to St. Louis, please. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the fake story. So congratulations on, on getting it correctly, Kurt. Well, yeah, that, that makes me two for one on my birthday. But, yeah. but more importantly, on, on the big board, the big scoreboard, yeah, what, what that we puts got? us at six to three with me in the lead. So, oh, my God. Oh, boy, Luis. Oh, it's, no. it's slipping it's away. Slipping Listen, down. you got You got to do something big. You got to pull out all the stops. Remember when I had the whole Paul LaRue, everyone's name Paul LaRue scheme going, and I would like texting you midweek saying like, I'm going to 
break your brain. I hope you're wearing a diaper this recording and stuff. You know, you got to gotta get get a little dirty with it. Something's got to give, you know? Next episode, everyone's going to be called J.M. Fisher. <laughs> with, that, with that blow to my ego yet again this week, mm. it's time for us to say goodbye. So thank you, Kurt, for... For playing along this week and wiping the floor with my face. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Did you get it correctly? Were you able to guess correctly just like Kurt did on his beautiful birthday? If you did, let us know. Please, we are on our social media on Instagram at UnbelievablePod. You can find us on Twitter at UnbelievablePC. And we're also on YouTube if you want to check out our podcast on there if you hate any other streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, thank you once again for listening. We'll catch you next episode where hopefully... I get to finally, finally slay that dragon that is Kurt Danner. But until then, yes. I will be just sitting here waiting for the fourth wave of Ska. Bye-bye, everyone. And remember, if you're going to steal someone's identity, at least find out what country they're from first. Nice, yeah. <laughs>